You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. This is part two of the Gog Magog War Study. This will be about context. All right, so context is king, as they say, and I think it really matters in the study of Ezekiel 38 and 39. I was originally only going to spend just a couple of slides on context, but the more I started looking at what people were saying about Gog Magog, the more I realized that so many of the errors out there, or what I perceive as errors, are a result of a lack of understanding of the context of Ezekiel as a whole and the chapters leading up to 38 and 39. Anyway, this ended up being a lot of information, so I don't want to overwhelm you, but if it helps, you should know that this was one of the most interesting Bible studies I've ever done. I was not expecting it to be, but it was. I also think it really glorifies God, and I hope you'll be able to see what I mean by that as we progress. All right, so zooming way out, let's look at the book of Ezekiel as a whole, everything from chapter one all the way to chapter 48. And I have it broken up here into four different sections with the first section, chapters one through 24, being sort of subtitled Judgments Against Israel. This would be written before the fall of Jerusalem. And the summary statement I have here is, the covenant has been broken and God will soon pass judgment on Israel. The next section, chapters 25 through 32, might be titled Judgments Against the Nations. This also was written before the fall of Jerusalem. And the summary statement there would be, though God will use the Gentile nations to carry out his judgments on Israel, he will judge the nations as well. So it is an oracle against the various nations and reasons why they would be judged. The next section is chapters 33 through 39. So this includes the Gog-Magog War in chapters 38 and 39. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time in this study trying to figure out the context of just this section. I have it entitled here, Future Restoration 1. This was interestingly written just after the fall of Jerusalem. Chapter 33 opens up with Ezekiel being told that Jerusalem has in fact fallen. So these messages would presumably be able to serve as encouragement to the Jews in exile. I have the summary statement like this. As they go into exile, Israel is encouraged that though things look bad, God will fulfill all of his promises to them in the future. Finally, the last section in Ezekiel is chapters 40 through 48. They are one large vision that spans eight chapters. I have it entitled Future Restoration 2. It was written 14 years after the fall of Jerusalem, as Ezekiel says in chapter 40. So 14 years later, the summary statement being eight chapters of detailed specifications of a massive temple complex in the millennium. So this is sometimes known as the Millennial Temple or Ezekiel's Temple. It's just massive complex that... Uh, obviously has never existed before, and it is widely understood to be in the millennium. So there's cubits and all that kind of technical stuff, but in a way it did serve as an encouragement to the Jews in exile because it was like, yes, the temple did get destroyed, but one day this is what the temple will look like. As I said, though, we're going to really zero in on chapters 33 through 39, these six messages, which make up one section in Ezekiel. And the sections, what I'm calling sections, is a pretty well-defined thing. 
In chapter 33, for example, it starts off by saying, In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. So that is what Ezekiel will do when he's starting an entire vision. That's why we know, for example, that chapters 40 is a different vision. He has, And that's also why we know that it was written 14 years after this date, because Ezekiel tells us. But within chapters 33 through 39, there are six messages. So there is a structure within the structure here. It's very well defined. Ezekiel starts out each message, and sometimes these are called the six night messages or whatever, with this phrase, the word of the Lord came to me. And we see that phrase in 33, 33.23, 34.1, 35.1, 36.16, that's the dry bones one, 37.15, that's the joined sticks. And then the Gog Magog War starts off in 38.1 with the words, the word of the Lord came to me. So, okay, so if you chart out all those places that start with the word of the Lord came to me, you'll see that there is yet another structure within that structure. So every time you see the words, the word of the Lord came to me, it will then pronounce a subject like the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say this. And then the next part of that pattern is that he condemns them and explains why he's condemning them. And the third and final part of the structure is that he explains the blessing and the future restorations. And typically in most of these sections that has something obvious to do with the kingdom age, the millennium. So it's talking about the Messiah or the millennial temple, or as, we're, as we'll see, some of these are very obvious. Some of them are less obvious and can possibly be applied to earlier events. And we'll look at that as well. I'm going to go through some of these bullet points on this chart in more detail later. So for our purposes right now, I'm just going to quickly go through each of these six messages and explain what's happening. So message 1, 33, 23 through 33 is to the inhabitants of Israel. This is a unique one. Uh, it has the con condemnation part is the same as the other structures that says because of their unfaithfulness uh, to the covenant of God, God will judge Jerusalem. I look at message 1 as kind of more of an intro, and so it's not terribly surprising that we don't see the same uh, blessing and restoration message that we see in the rest of the five messages. So we'll skip that for now. Moving on to message two, which is a prophecy to the shepherds of Israel from 34.1 to 31. This is because of Israel's priests and kings leading badly. They have led Israel astray and they will be judged. The section where it talks about the blessings include things like God regathering them to Israel, God will permanently rule over them with the Messiah. The language is really clear there, we'll see. They will dwell securely. They will have a fruitful land. The nations will no longer reproach them, and they will no longer be prey to man or beast. So those are some of the uh, good things that the second message talks about in its structure. So moving on to message three, this is Ezekiel 35 through 3615. This is a prophecy to the mountains of Seir, which is Edom. It's just the, the word, another way to say to Edom. And it's also a message to the mountains of Israel. So it's two mountains in this one, to Edom and Israel. So this is because Edom helped Babylon and rejoiced in the destruction of Israel. It will be made a wasteland forever. And this is a future event because Isaiah 11:14 and Isaiah 63:1 make it clear that the Messiah is the one that actually destroys Edom in the future. So this isn't currently permanently fulfilled. It may have a near fulfillment or something, but that's interesting in the in the curses section, if you will. 
In the blessing section, it talks about the land will be fruitful. Lots of verses about that. All Israel will be gathered to the land. Also, Israel will no longer bear the reproach of nations. So that is the three topics in the blessings in message three. Message four, this is to the house of Israel, and it is 36.16 to 37.14. The uh, condemnation part is because Israel defiled the land with bloodshed and idols, God will scatter them. They will also bring shame to his name in exile. So lots of condemnation for Israel in the condemnation section. But message four has a lot to say in the blessing section. It says that they will, that all Israel will be gathered back to the land. God will cleanse them of their sin. God will give them a new spirit. That is to say his spirit, he says explicitly. Uh, they will genuinely repent. The land will be fruitful and there will be no more famine. Also, the nations around them will know that he is the Lord. In message five, it's interesting because this is the only one that doesn't have a condemnation section, but it becomes pretty clear, and we'll show this later on, that it's a retelling in a sense. So this is where we get, for example, the dry bones and the sticks of uh, being joined together. That is sort of a object lesson of what was said in the message four, the one that we just read. So it skips the condemnation section in, in favor of the vision of the dry bones and the sticks, but then the blessing section is very much the same. And included in the blessing section is all Israel gathered back into the land. God will uh, make them a unified nation. The Messiah shall rule over them forever. God will cleanse them of sin. There will be an everlasting covenant. The nations around them will know that he is the Lord and God's temple will be with them forever. Finally, we come to the Gog-Magog section, Ezekiel 38 and 39, the last message. It is a prophecy to Gog, and it is because Gog wanted to attack a peaceful people who had been regathered in Israel that were dwelling securely without bars or gates. Because he had this thought in his mind to do this, he will be utterly destroyed, both him and his armies. The blessing section is interesting. In fact, I'm not even sure I would call it a blessing section. The, the structure is so different. But it is interesting that those same themes that we saw in the blessing section and the others are mentioned in Ezekiel, but just as a part of the narrative. So it's presupposed that they have been regathered, that it's a fruitful land, they're dwelling securely, that there's peace with nations up until this point anyway, that the whole house of Israel is there, the waste places have been rebuilt. So all those themes are there within the narrative of, of Ezekiel, but it does still retain the basic structure of the night messages, especially at the end. And so I would say that the main blessing here is that Israel and the nation, so the nations afterwards, will see that God has defended their peace and it will be a testimony forever. So it's almost as if it's a, a validation, um, if they were worried that their peace would be able to stand up to scrutiny, this is that validation that they would need etc. At least that's my interpretation of it. So in this next slide, what I've done is showed all the different themes and I've given them short titles like Regathered, Fruitful Land, Messiah, Cleansed from Sin slash New Covenant, Waste Places Rebuilt, all these themes that we saw and just showed how each one of these messages has which elements. And if you are a podcast listener, you can know that there are scripture references underneath each of these, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through them all. So message one doesn't have any of those. As I said, I think it's more of an intro. Message two has regathered, fruitful land, Messiah, 
dwell securely, no famine, peace with nations, and house of Israel. And by house of Israel, I mean it's very explicit that both Judah and the northern tribes will be together, all of them again. Message three has regathered, fruitful land, house of Israel, peace with nations, and waste places rebuilt. That waste places rebuilt, I know it sounds somewhat uh, arbitrary, but it's a, it's a theme that goes all through the prophets and it's usually connected to millennial language. So I made sure to include it here because it is consistent here as well. Message four has regathered, fruitful land, no famine, peace with nations, house of Israel, waste places rebuilt, cleansed from sin slash new covenant. Message five has regathered Messiah, peace with nations, house of Israel, cleansed from sin slash new covenant, temple forever. And then the final message, uh, this is the Gog Magog section, has regathered, fruitful land, dwell securely, peace with nations, house of Israel, waste places rebuilt, cleansed from sin slash new covenant. Now, I will say that in Gog Magog, I took a little more liberties. For example, the peace with nations is only at the end of Gog Magog that, that, that becomes available in certain things like that. But for the most part, I tried to be really conservative with these. And you can see these scripture references, and I'll link this in the show notes uh, so you can see it as well. So the big question is, when are all these prophecies fulfilled? Are they all to be understood as the regathering of Israel in the second temple period with like Nehemiah and Ezra? Or are some of them or all of them to apply to 1948 uh, when the uh, modern state of Israel was formed? Or do we say that they all must be relegated to the end times at the end of the 70th week of Daniel when the ingathering there will happen with Jesus himself leading them from uh, Basra, etc.? And we'll look at all that in a minute. Or is it something else? And I think before we can discuss that, because I do think that there are more or less right answers in here, even though I'm going to land on a very near far idea, I do think there's some pretty explicit biblical stuff that we can look at. So I'm not going to be wishy-washy on this by any means. But before I can even get there, I need to describe something I'm calling the 4D chess theory. The idea is that God, through Ezekiel, wrote this section of scripture around the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C., and he wrote it with an immediate context and an ultimate fulfillment, but it is also perfectly suited for all of God's purposes throughout all of time. And the more you can see how it accomplishes all that, the more you will glorify God. So let me show you what I mean. For example, I think many aspects of these chapters in Ezekiel are crucial for the encouragement of the exiles in Babylon for that 70 years after the initial fall of Jerusalem. This was to lead them to repentance and to encourage them not to give up hope while in exile. The next event on the timeline, which would be like the rebuilding of Jerusalem with Nehemiah and Ezra, the real regathering of Israel has a lot of the same elements we've already seen, like regathering, fruitful land, waste places rebuilt. And I would even argue there are certain near fulfillments with things like the true repentance and even a kind of new covenant. Again, know that I am talking about a near fulfillment here, but there's even kind of a fulfillment of the Messiah aspect in those verses that we read that a Messiah was going to rule over them and he was the one that was going to gather them. And in a sense, Cyrus, who was the one who did free them and was technically their ruler during that whole period, was called a Messiah in Isaiah 45.1. Again, I know this is obviously near fulfillment stuff, but there are just really important echoes. And we're going to see later when we look at 
um, Deuteronomy 30 and Leviticus 26 and how the law prescribed how to return to the land when you are exiled and how Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezra recognized it and prayed the same prayer. It's, it's really fascinating. But again, it's a near fulfillment. But the point is, I think it's biblically defensible to say that this return from exile 70 years later is a partial or near fulfillment of these chapters we read in Ezekiel. The next relevant event on the timeline is the first century with Jesus and the institution of the new covenant in Acts 2. I think these passages in Ezekiel were certainly read by people during the intertestamental period before Jesus. And it's no doubt that these things helped to prepare hearts to repent and believe in the gospel. Certainly this is a great place to see a partial fulfillment regarding the being cleansed of sin and being given a new heart of flesh and all the very detailed new covenant language in Ezekiel 36 and 37. Though I would argue that even though this was probably a near fulfillment for the individual Jews who became Christians in the new covenant and were given a new heart, the insistence of the text in Ezekiel that this new covenant was for all national Israel precludes this event in the first century from being the actual literal fulfillment because we know from Daniel, as we'll see later, that the cleansing of sin on a national level cannot happen until the end of the 70th week. The next relevant event on the timeline, I think, is the fall of Jerusalem, this time in 70 AD by the Romans. There is not, I would say, anything in here that would be a fulfillment of that in these prophecies, but I would say that these prophecies during the next 2,000 years or so, they were used probably in the same way they were used in the first exile. That is to say, encouragement, that it all was not lost, that it would be restored, that there was in fact a future for Israel. So it accomplishes it, its purpose during the that greatest uh, uh, exile so far. So I'm just mostly saying here, it, it was useful to them in the same way, and maybe even more so than the Jews uh, after the initial exile. The next one, which is the formation of the Jewish state of Israel in 1948, is a big one in our day. It's the one that these verses a lot of times get applied to. And there are certain elements in those Ezekiel chapters that could be applied, like gathering, fruitful land, waste places rebuilt. And there are certainly elements that can't be applied, like the Messiah, the temple being rebuilt, the uh, repentance, the new covenant, and so on and so forth. So we're actually going to look at this one in a lot more detail later on because I know it is the more popular idea. And I think there's more to say about that one in terms of what should and shouldn't be included um, when we look at other parts of scripture as well. So we'll come back to that. After the battle of Armageddon or right around there, as the millennium starts, it really gets interesting because this is where most of those prophecies we saw in Ezekiel start to look fulfilled in the far and complete sense. Things like gathering, fruitful land, waste places rebuilt, Messiah, dwell securely, no famine, new covenant, house of Israel, temple forever. So it's certainly a good candidate. I would say that basically all those things apply to the Revelation 20 Gog Magog war as well because Clearly, they are also evident there, but I would say that there are some things that don't apply to Armageddon. For example, the you can't say it is a universal and everlasting peace with nations or the nations will no longer reproach them because if you believe that there is a war in Revelation 20, you have to understand that those nations are being reproachful to Israel and therefore it can't really have its final and complete fulfillment until after that event. 
And we'll look at that in great detail as we get further along in this study. So I would say it like this, the strong millennial language in Ezekiel 34 through 39, especially those references to the Messiah in Ezekiel 33, 37, the being cleansed from sin and being given God's spirit in the new covenant in 36, 37, and 39, and the peace with the nations in 33, 36, 37, and 39, all make it clear that any interpretation that does not understand this is deficient. But it would also be wrong to say that all of these chapters only have their fulfillment in the millennium. We do need to continue to talk about context though, and that's because a lot of teachers out there will teach that, for example, Ezekiel 36 and 37, these are the ones about the dry bones and these kind of things, are about the formation of the modern state of Israel in 1948. And they basically will say that that's the main and total fulfillment of those passages. And they do that by really only focusing on the verses that talk about regathering or the fruitfulness of the land, but an almost total lack of teaching, maybe not even mentioning the verses in the same chapters about the genuine repentance, the cleansing from sin, and certainly the verses about the Messiah being involved with this regathering. Some teachers will kind of split up Ezekiel 36 and 37 and say, for example, that Ezekiel 36 was entirely fulfilled in 1948 and Chuck Smith, I think, teaches this. It's kind of hard to pin it down. I listened to a few sermons and that kind of thing. It seemed like he was saying that all of 36 was fulfilled, but only some of Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled. And in his sermons, what he did is kind of like what I talked about. He, in 36, he definitely plays up the gathering aspect, the fruitfulness of the land. And he reads in his defense the, the verses about them not sinning anymore and uh, the new covenant, but he doesn't really comment on it. But in the next verse, he does the same thing. He comments on the regathering of the land and the, the fruitfulness of the land. But in that case, in Ezekiel 37, he comes to the verses about the Messiah ruling them forever and the temple being in their midst forevermore. And he admits, of, of course, that that's the millennium. And while I think that's better doctrine to admit that there is at the very least a dual fulfillment, it does kind of mess up what a lot of them also teach about the Gog-Magog war, which is that they'll say things like, Gog Magog is the next event on the prophetic timeline, if you've ever heard anything like that. The way they come to that conclusion is right here in between Ezekiel 37 and the next chapter, the beginning of 38. So if they can convince themselves that Ezekiel 37 has entirely been fulfilled in the past in 1948, then the next event on the timeline and the next chapter is the Gog Magog War. But I would say, if you can clearly see that a lot of the stuff in 37, including the Messiah ruling them forever, the temple being in their midst forevermore, an everlasting covenant, the nations around them no longer uh, are, are warring against them and that kind of thing, that stuff certainly has not been fulfilled in Ezekiel 37. And therefore the next event on the timeline, if you do wanna read it chronologically, that would actually mean that 38 and 39 is the millennium. And I actually do think that, but that's a whole nother story. I, I wouldn't use this to prove that because I don't think this is necessarily intended to be chronological, although it might be. But if it is, it would support the thesis that the Gog-Magog War takes place within the context of the, of the millennium. Um, and I know this is a little bit complicated. It does help to look at the graphs on this one particularly. 
And I know some of you are thinking, well, what about being regathered in unbelief? And it's sort of a two-stage process. And I'm going to get to that later. I've specifically sort of moved that down because that's going to help us springboard into some really interesting stuff. But for now, I want to really drive the point home that Ezekiel 36 is the same thing as Ezekiel 37. Or though they are two different messages, as it were, um, Ezekiel 36 is saying in plain English what Ezekiel 37 does by sort of object lessons with the dry bones and the sticks that are joined together. What I'm going to show you is that they have a lot of elements that can't be split up. One way to do that is through the covenant language. Ezekiel 36 just very quickly says things like, Thus says the Lord God, on that day I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. So a total uh, cleansing from God of all your iniquities. We th see the same thing over in 37 when uh, God says, They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. The same thing can be seen with the covenant language in Ezekiel 36, in which it says talks about uh, giving them a new heart and removing their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh and all of that. And then in Ezekiel 37, we have the mention of the new covenant and the peace with them. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. So direct covenant language. All this to say that to split them up and say Ezekiel 36 is different than Ezekiel 37 and fulfilled at different times is very, very problematic because then you have covenants to fulfill at different times and it just doesn't work with the way that I've heard this presented. Really quickly, I've just got a couple slides of verses that I think could be applied to 1948 and those that are problematic uh, for 1948 out of Ezekiel 36 and 37 uh, only. So with 36, I would say this one could be applied to 1948, and I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. So that one's a little bit difficult because of the whole house of Israel language. You could maybe make a case. The next one is similar, Ezekiel 36, 11, and I will multiply on you man and beast, and they shall multiply and be fruitful, and I will cause you to be inhabited as in the former times, and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. That one, again, is, is a little bit troublesome. The next one is not. It's pretty straightforward. 36, 24 says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So that could easily apply to 1948. We've got a couple more like that on the 36 side. Ezekiel 37 really only has one passage that I think could definitely apply to 1948 and isn't problematic. And that is 37.21, which says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. So, And we've already sort of covered this, so I'll just really briefly mention some of the much more numerous problematic passages for the 1948 theory in Ezekiel 36 and 37. You can see if you're looking at this, there's just a lot more here. And just out of the hat here, the first one, Ezekiel 36, 15, and I will not let you hear any more the reproach of nations. And it goes on to talk about how the nations won't be a problem for them. So the nat nations certainly are reproachful to Israel, so that that's problematic. Ezekiel 37, for example, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. So you can get the flavor here that there's just a lot of problematic stuff here if we want to say that either of these have been entirely fulfilled in 1948. Well, let's move on to that idea about being regathered in unbelief. So this is a term that means that perhaps the regathering 
is fulfilled in 1948, but it was not necessary for them to repent or believe in the Messiah. They, that will happen, as Daniel 9.24 says, at the end of the 70th week, at, you know, after Armageddon. But maybe the regathering can occur first. To this, they will cite Ezekiel 36, 24, and 25, which says the following. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So the idea here is that this is supposed to be taken as a chronological phrase. And even though it doesn't have any chronological language like and then or because of that or any connecting phrases, it's just that the gathering is placed before the cleansing in this verse. So what can we say about that theory? The first thing that I would say is that in that same chapter, Ezekiel 36 and verse 33, it does have chronological language. And there it seems to suggest that the order is a covenant, a cleansing, and then the gathering. So Ezekiel 36, 33 says, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt and all the land that was desolate to be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say the land was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. So all those things like become like the Garden of Eden that you've certainly heard in relationship to 1948 is skipping the way that that started, where it says, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. The second line of evidence I would use to say that 1948 does not really conform to the biblical picture of a regathering is because regatherings are conditional as per the law of Moses. And this is where it gets really interesting to me. First, what I mean by that is that the condition is that they need to completely repent and then return to the Lord. And that repentance is what is talked about in those Ezekiel passages. But it's interesting because starting in Leviticus, the where God is explaining the law and, you know, you do this and I will do this and all these things. But it gets really interesting because then he starts to talk about what will happen when they disobey and break the covenant. So he's anticipating that one day they will break the covenant. And the curses for that is that they will be scattered among the nations. And so he then goes on to prescribe a very important way in which once they are scattered in the nations, if this ever happens, which he knows it will, uh, then you do this particular pattern and then he will gather you again to the land. So this is all laid out ahead of time in the law. So certain things that they must do, a condition in the law that when they are gathered, they need to humble in a specific way and then he will regather them. So the regatherings are conditional. And you can read through this and you can see a lot of the language that we've been seeing in those Ezekiel passages are all throughout this law. It's uh, mentioned here first in Leviticus 26. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but Leviticus 26, 33 through 46, I'll just kind of skip around. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be laid waste. So there he's saying, this is what I'll do when you disobey the covenant. And then he continues later on, but if they confess their iniquity and their iniquity of their fathers and the treachery they committed against me also in walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, so there's a humbling, there's a confessing, then, here's your conditional part, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and he goes on for uh, at least two more verses talking about uh, how this will work. 
Now, this is reiterated in gathering language in Deuteronomy, where it says in Deuteronomy 31 through 10, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord. So when you return to the Lord, then he says, Then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So the gathering is an if-then statement dependent upon their repentance. This conditional covenant restoration according to the law is actually mentioned in Ezekiel 36 right before the verse we read just a minute ago to prove that repentance comes before gathering. Ezekiel 36, 31 through 33 says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. So you have that, that true repentance language. And then skip down a verse. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, I will cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. So if you look at that in context, you see the repentance. And then you see why he says, on that day, I will cleanse you from your iniquities. That is after your repentance. And then I will cause the cities to be inhabited, the gathering, the waste places to be rebuilt, etc. So with all that in mind, I think I can now show you what I mean by there being at least two biblical ingatherings in the Bible. The first one is brought about by Daniel the prophet, who seemed to recognize what we just read about the law and made intercession in the prescribed way that the law said to do. His repentance in this prayer in Daniel 9 was accepted on behalf of Israel, and God gathered them through Cyrus to the land for the second temple period. And I got to say, this is just a very heartfelt prayer from Daniel. It literally brought me to tears even now, thinking about how Daniel includes himself in this thing, even though he's making a corporate prayer for Israel. But just read it if you have a chance. Daniel 9, 2 through 19. It's Daniel saying, look, I read the Bible. I get it now. I understand what we have to do in order to get back into the land. And it's right after he prays this in Daniel 9 that literally Gabriel is sent out. Of course, he's like hindered by the Prince of Persia and all that stuff. But as soon as he prays this prayer, it all sets in motion. The whole Cyrus thing is part of Daniel's thing too. So Daniel really had a lot to do with this. But that's not to say he was the only one. If you look at Nehemiah and Ezra, you'll see the same basic thing. So in Nehemiah 1, 4 through 10, you have him doing the same thing, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules you commanded of your servant Moses. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them through your outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them. So they're completely aware that the gathering is required, that repentance is uh, as prescribed by Moses is what he's saying here, that if they do this, then they can be gathered back to the land. So this idea that gatherings are conditional upon repentance repentance isn't just such an ironclad case. All right, so when I talk about there being two biblically defensible gatherings in scripture, I think I kind of might mean that there can only be two, both a near and a far. And I know that kind of goes against what I was saying earlier about the 4D chess, which I still think is true. I mean, so much of the, that those chapters apply to so many parts of history, but as far as the gatherings, we need to be more careful about saying which ones are which. And this is why, Isaiah 11:10. 10. 
In that day, the root of Jesse, so this is talking about Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Harmoth, and from the coastlands of the sea for a second time. Now, this is definitely in the end times. And yet the Bible through Isaiah is saying that a second time in the end times, he's going to recover the remnant that remains of his people. It's assuming the first time was the one in, uh, in Nehemiah's day. So there's a second gathering, but it isn't during the day of the Lord. Some supportive evidence can be found in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 14 for this. It says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search out for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So if you're sensitive to day of the Lord language, that is a pretty big one. On a day of clouds and thick darkness is speaking of the day of the Lord. So there is a gathering that can be biblically defended that happened with Nehemiah and Ezra. And there is a gathering that I think can be biblically defended about the day of the Lord. There are more passages. I know I didn't really go through much to really make that solid for you, but Zechariah 14, Micah 2, uh, Amos 9, Zephaniah 3, and those are the, just the ones I just barely found from uh, a quick study. But this is a really consistent theme in the prophets in which the Lord himself, and even Ezekiel later on in that same chapter in 34, makes it very clear that he himself will do it, that he himself will be a part of this. And I think that's what we see in um, in a gathering that's splitting the Mount of Olives and all that stuff that happens in the end times is that gathering, that final one that this mostly refers to. Before concluding, I thought I should try to be crystal clear about my thoughts about the modern state of Israel and its formation in 1948. And if that has any relevance to Ezekiel 36 or 37 or both. And before I did the study, I was probably about a 50-50 and I also thought that it didn't really matter as long as you understood that it was a dual fulfillment. And if 1948 has any relevance to any of those chapters, it would be as a dim shadow, but the ultimate fulfillment is in the future. If you were to say 1948 is the fulfillment of any of those, then I would say that has to be wrong and it's definitely going to lead to error. But after the study and I, and really the section about seeing that in gatherings, biblical in gatherings are conditional, also, that passage in Isaiah that really seemed to suggest that there were only two, at least by the day of the Lord, then it really makes it harder for me to understand how 1948 can be a part of that. And a lot of the arguments for it seem to be kind of worldly. Like they'll say, well, the war in 1967 was miraculous, or I don't know, just sort of things like that, not real biblical arguments. So at the end of the day, I would say I'm probably, instead of 50-50, more like 30-70 now. So I hope that many of you can see now why I think it's really important to know the context before we jump into Ezekiel 38 and 39. I can promise you that you will be better prepared to study Ezekiel 38 and 39 as we progress. Thanks for listening to Bible Prophecy Daily. We hope you learned something valuable today. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. 